Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now I need your help to get back to the year 1985. Hey guys, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today. And we're looking at what I think is the best year of the best decade, and that is 1985. If the 80s were like the Beatles, then 1985 might have been at Sgt. Pepper's. It's smack dab in the middle of the decade and brought us some amazing stuff as far as pop culture content and movies and cartoons and all that sort of stuff. So we'll get right into my list of the top 19 things from 1985. Before we start, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. Okay, here we go. So I was eight in 1985, but I was right in that ideal wheelhouse to make the most of what 1985 had to offer, whether it was cartoons, toys, movies, TV shows. 85 brought us some of the best creations in all time. And so I'm going to look back. I picked 19 here. I just like odd numbers, but this list could have been 500 things long, but that's the easy way out. It doesn't force you to narrow it down. And only, having only 10 was almost impossible. So I figured on a nice nine, 19. So these are, of course, my own opinion, which means they're 100, 100% correct, not up for debate. But here's a few honorable mentions from 1985. Ewok's Battle for Endor came out that year. So did Fall That Bird, the Sesame Street movie. Teen Wolf also came out. Star Wars Droids, the toy My Buddy, and the Bedbugs game. Okay, so let's start at number 19, and that is Gem and the Holograms. So Gem and the Holograms was modeled after those robots from Cybertron, the Transformers. Not in appearance, but that they were used using the same approach that worked in launching the Transformer toys, but this time using the same formula on girls. They would release a cartoon show that debuted all the characters and followed that up with the subsequent toy line. The show and the toys were a huge hit, and everyone was aware of Gem and the Holograms. Even if you claimed to hate it as a boy in the 80s, you were very aware of it and its iconic theme song. Gem and the Holograms came out on October 6, 1985, and told the story of music company owner Jerrica Benton and her alter ego, Gem. She was teamed up with her group, The Holograms, and the show would share all their adventures. Their adversaries were The Misfits and then The Stingers. Gem and the Holograms lasted for three seasons, 65 episodes, and was a huge hit with kids as soon as it came out. Number 18 on our list, Sour Patch Kids, an all-time classic candy that tried to capitalize on the similar name as the Cabbage Patch Kids. They go back to the 70s where they were first known as Mars Men and were a combination of soft candy, invert sugar, and sour sugar. Cadbury and Maleco Licorice Company joined forces to create Allen Candy to start producing these Mars Men, but then changed the name in 1985 to Sour Patch Kids to make them seem familiar after the Cabbage Patch Kids craze had swept North America. Over the years, they've put out dozens and dozens of different versions of Sour Patch Kids, and most funny of all, they're in France, they are known as Very Bad Kids. Okay, number 17, The Pound Puppies. 
Pound puppies are interesting as they find their origins after the video game crash of 1983, which I've covered a lot on this show before. So video games ruled the roost, specifically Atari, into the early 80s. But a lack of quality and then the E.T. video uh, Atari video game led to its demise. Giant companies like Hasbro and Mattel lost millions in investments that had been put into video games, and they took back, they went to more of a traditional return uh, of toys, like, you know, going back to things like teddy bears and dolls and just more simple things after all this electronic mayhem. The Pound Puppies also borrowed from the successful Cabbage Patch Kids theme, and instead of just a stuffed dog, you had one with an identity that needed to be adopted. They also came in little carrying cases that looked like dog houses, and it gave them a real identity and novelty, and that separated them from other stuffed animals. They would be followed by a cartoon series and the Pound Puppies would generate around $300 million, making one of the most successful toys of the 1980s. Number 16, Mad Balls. Mad Balls were amazing. Loved by kids, hated by parents. You had the perfect toy for a kid as it combined gross-out humor with something you could throw. Mad Balls were created by Amtoy, and they have an interesting origin of their own. A group of toy designers was sitting around, messing around with the idea of the game Hot Potato, where you'd have to pass around a hot potato until someone was stuck holding it. They wondered if it would be interesting that instead of a, of a potato, you would look down and find you were holding a grotesque head. They then had an unofficial competition to see who could come up with the most grotesque head, and the executives who came in to see the drawings loved the idea and wanted to actually produce these things. They were an immediate hit, especially with me. They came out in 1985, and some of those characters that were first introduced were Scream and Meanie, Skullface, among the first few releases. They didn't last super long, but made a decent little impact in 1985. And as I said, parents seem to hate them. So what kid wouldn't want one of those? Number 15, combination between Hulkamania and Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling cartoon, which I just recently covered on this show as well. So Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling came out in 1985 and it was a way to capitalize on the growing popularity of the then WWF, Hulk Hogan and Hulkamania. Coming out of WrestleMania 1, professional wrestling was hitting an all-time high that some say has actually never really been topped, even with the, like, the Attitude Era and stuff like that. Their involvement with MTV and the rock and wrestling connection was giving them a mainstream exposure, and kids like me were becoming enamored with Hulk Hogan. What better way to capitalize on all, on all this than with a Saturday morning cartoon show? The show featured Hulk Hogan and the good guys versus Rowdy Roddy Piper and the bad guys in some standard cartoon tropes. Unfortunately, due to their busy road schedule, none of the real wrestlers were able to provide voices for the cartoon. Hulkamania was reaching a fever pitch in 1985 and would only grow going into WrestleMania 2 up to the iconic WrestleMania 3 that would cement Hulk Hogan's legacy forever. Number 14... Jolt Cola. All the sugar, twice the caffeine. Jolt Cola existed as a sort of an urban legend type product in that everyone seemed to hear the story of the kid who drank too much of it and then died from the caffeine overdose. I don't know if this went around your school if you were growing up at the time, but I remember this very well. As it turns out, this was not true, but we realized that Jolt Cola um, was this sort of kind of badass drink, but it turns out it had less caffeine than a decent shot of espresso, but that didn't stop it from reaching a cult status. Jolt Cola has a bit of a scandalous side to it in its presentation and marketing, and to me in 1985, it just, it seemed like a 
bit of a forbidden fruit. I wanted to drink it, but I think I would have been too scared to because of just all the myths surrounding it. Joel Cola has its beginnings in college, specifically SUNY uh, Potsdam College, where its creator, CJ Rapp, noticed how fellow students were always concocting their own creations in order to be able to stay up and study. Rapp saw a huge opportunity and market for a beverage that would fit the bill, and that led to the creation of Jolt Cola. The problem was they were legally limited to having a maximum of 72 milligrams of caffeine by the Food and Drug Administration. Basically, with the, the whole idea with Jolt Cola is they wanted to call it the wimpy cola market that was focusing on diet drinks by claiming to still have all the sugar people wanted but twice the caffeine. It wouldn't be the cola for sissies with Diet Coke. Uh, just coming out in 1983. It was thought that there was no hope for Jolt Cola, and it, they said it would only maybe last three to five years, but it's still available to this day. Uh, an underground following, a huge word of mouth, it just all this allowed for Jolt Cola to make a nice little dent in 1985. Okay, number 13 on our list is the show Growing Pains. And Growing Pains came out uh, debuted on September 24th, 1985, lasted all the way to 1992, which was impressive as a lot of the big sitcoms of the 80s didn't last past the end of the decade. Growing Pains told the story of the Seaver family, where Dr. Jason Seaver, played by the late, great Canadian icon Alan Thicke, has to stay home to raise his kids while his wife Maggie has gone back to work as a reporter. The show was a big hit, especially because it featured hot actor Kirk Cameron and had one of the best sitcom theme songs in As as Long As We've Got Each Other. The show is a huge hit among many huge 80s sitcoms and was constantly nominated for a wide variety of awards. It was kind of like the modern family of its day. It just it stood out and kept kind of rising up when award season would come around all the time. Okay, speaking of sitcoms, at number 12 is one of the weirdest sitcoms of the 80s and of all time, really, and that is the show Small Wonder. Small Wonder was something you couldn't help but get caught up on, and it told the story of the Lawson family and Vicky, a child robot built by the father of the family uh, that they passed off as an adopted child. Small Wonder debuted uh, in September 1985 and would last just until 1989. Vicky was technically Vicky, V-I-C-I, the voice input child identicate, and she probably would have made a pretty good Avenger. Vicky was played by actor Tiffany Brissett, and it was like a small, if you've never seen the show, she was like a small Iron Man who had superhuman strength and speed. Small Wonder is interesting because it was one of the very first shows that was produced as a syndicated series, meaning that it never had an original broadcast date. So, you know, it didn't debut at Thursday night at 8 o'clock in prime time, which created you know, much more financial difficulties. This was made to be distributed. So that meant it cost next to nothing. And even if the show wasn't good, it was always profitable. There was no way for this show not to make money. So that's kind of one of the interesting things that hadn't really been done before and made it one of the hallmarks of 1985 and the 80s. Number 11, Max Hedrum. And I've done a whole show on Max Headroom. I've done a lot of more in-depth on uh, some of these shows. But Max Headroom was a computer-generated character that was a big po- part of pop culture in the 80s. This was a creation that was pretty ahead of its time, and the character debuted in 1985. So if you don't know what I'm talking about with Max Headroom, if you've seen Back to the Future 2, you'll remember him from the cafe 80s. And Max Headroom was a real person. He was played by a guy named Matt Frewer who is a huge inspiration um, to Jim Carrey. If you ever go back and watch old Max Headroom and Matt Frewer, you'll see Jim Carrey in it. 
And it was the creation of several people. And it actually has a pretty deep backstory with the character. He debuted in England on a show called Max Headroom 20 Minutes Into the Future. It was a TV movie to introduce the character, which led to the Max Headroom TV series and then work with MTV. Max Headroom was meant to be a response to the generic and egotistical TV personalities of the time, but they also created this pretty extensive universe for him to exist in. His place in pop culture was cemented with his use in commercials for New Coke as they were trying to capture the new wave movement that was happening with music and MTV. And again, go back and check out a very interesting episode. Okay, number 10 of the best things in 1985, and this is a toy and it is Teddy Ruxpin. And again, another sort of bizarre story too is Teddy Ruxpin has roots in Disney, Winnie the Pooh, even Chuck E. Cheese. He was created by a guy named Ken Forsey who designed the animatronics for those things. Like if you remember the show Welcome to Pooh Corner or the Country Bear Jamboree or the Chuck E. Cheese animatronics. He, he designed all those things. His idea was to take this same to- technology but shrink it down into something a kid could have at home. This led him to working with some of the top people uh, from Disney and from these other companies. So they helped them design the movements of Teddy Ruxpin, the voice, the stories. So it was a very creative process creating its talking bear. They also gave Teddy a full backstory that involves the land of Grundo and the classification of Teddy Ruxpin, not as a bear, but as an Iliop. That's what he's characterized as. million was put into the production of Teddy Ruxpin. And he went from a prototype, basically it was just this head on a stick, to store shelves in a blisteringly fast uh, six months. And that is unheard of for a toy. It's years and years from start to finish with a toy. Six months to get this thing done. He was released in September 1985, in time for Christmas, and was a huge hit, selling 41,000 units in just 30 days and making $93 million by the end of the year. Their plan was, you remember the Teddy Ruxman cartoon, their plan was to roll this out beforehand like they did with other toys, like you know, Transformers, Gem and the Holograms, all that sort of thing. Turns out they didn't even need the cartoon at all. This thing was such a hit because of the advertising and marketing campaign. So whether you had a Teddy Ruxman or not, you were definitely aware of this Talking Bear in 1985. Okay, number nine, the movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Not a lot of other things shape my childhood more than Pee Wee Herman and Pee Wee's Playhouse, but before all that, there was Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which was the first full-length directorial debut of a young Tim Burton. 
The movie came out on August 9th, 1985, and told the story of a man-boy named Pee Wee Herman and his quest to recover his beloved stolen bicycle. Paul Rubens, who played Pee Wee Herman, had been performing the character... Uh, for the Groundlings and had a stage show in 1980 called the Pee Wee Herman Show. The original premise for Pee Wee's Big Adventure was going to be a remake of the movie Pollyanna with Pee Wee playing the Haley Mills role. But after noticing staff at Warner Brothers Studio all using bikes to get around, he started rewriting the script. It was then loosely based on a 1949 movie called Bicycle Thieves. Pee-wee's Big Adventure was a decent hit, grossing over $40 million in North America, but would go on to become a cult favorite. The success of the movie would lead to the TV show the next year, along with the sequel, Big Top Pee-wee, and nothing else of significance with Paul Rubens and movie theaters ever happened again. The success, though, of Pee-wee's Big Adventure would also be what allowed Tim Burton to make Edward Scissorhands, which ultimately led him to direct Batman. Okay, at number eight on our list of the best things from 1985, one of my favorite topics ever, it's New Coke. And I, I did a whole show on New Coke and the whole history of this crazy story and the, this marketing experience that you might want to check on. Uh, but with New Coke, this was either strategic brilliance or a massive brand failure, but it probably exists somewhere in the middle. In 1985, Coca-Cola was turning 100, but their time in the sun had really passed and they had a very small market share in the cola game and were getting beaten quite badly by Pepsi. Since since this was the 100th anniversary, they thought this could be the time to introduce a new version of Coke. They'd actually been tinkering around with a new formula under the guise called Project Kansas. The new flavor was a sweeter iteration of Coke to match what was the the new sort of taste experience with Diet Coke, and it was testing quite well. A big thing that they didn't listen to during all the market research is how testers indicated they would like this in addition to regular Coke, but they didn't listen. Not only would they release new Coke in 1985, but they stopped making the original formula altogether and people went nuts. The backlash was so severe that Coke was forced to abandon new Coke and bring back the original formula in only 78 days. The original Coke would now be rebranded as Coca-Cola Classic and new Coke would never be seen again until its brilliant connection with Stranger Things Season 3. And hopefully you'd seen all that. Some say they planned this all along to create nostalgia in people to, appre- to appreciate what they had taken for granted. But one, is the, one of the chairman of Coke um, mentioned, we're not that dumb and we're not that smart. The, honestly, go back, like go find this episode. It's, it's one of the earlier episodes in everything 80s. And it's just, it's one of the most amazing marketing stories of all time, uh, as well as some nostalgia and 80s related stuff. Okay, number seven on our list. Going back to toys and it is He-Man. One of the few toys of the 80s that was a completely original idea. He-Man captured the essence of a powerful action figure and a pretty amazing mythology. He-Man had some big-time influence off of Conan the Barbarian, but He-Man was part barbarian, part soldier, and part sort of spaceman. The cartoon came out in 1983, but by 1985, it was reaching its pinnacle popularity. He-Man makes up the big three of 1980s toys alongside Transformers and G.I. Joe, and the cartoon, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, was must-see after-school TV in 1985. He-Man in 1985 went together like Prince Adam of Eternia and Cringer, and then the less we talk about the movie that came out in 1987, the better. Okay, Well, speaking of movies here, we'll move on to number six. 
And it is the quintessential coming-of-age film and one of the definitive movies of the 80s, The Breakfast Club. It came out on February 15th, 1985. It was directed by John Hughes, and it told the story of an unlikely combination of high school students that bond over the course of a Saturday detention. Made on a budget of only $1 million, The Breakfast Club was filmed at the same high school used as the interior setting for another Hughes classic, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The cast rehearsed for three straight weeks and was able to film the movie in the exact sequence. This is, you know, a big reason that really makes this movie flow and blend together so well. They weren't jumping around from scene to scene. They were making it in order. It's a movie that could work in any era as it explores, you know, those themes of teenagers feeling misunderstood and combating against an authority figure. It also works so well as everyone can identify themselves in at least one of the characters. And it shows how people who have essentially nothing in common realize they aren't all that different from one another. It was a critical and commercial success and a huge part of 1985. And at number five, G.I. Joe. And even though G.I. Joe goes back to the 60s, it was in the 80s where it really rose to prominence. And G.I. Joe can be seen as the real kickoff in the era of cartoon shows that were used solely to promote a toy line. This was the classic combination of good guys versus bad bad guys, awesome machinery, and straight-up combat. The real American hero captured the imagination of every kid growing up in the 80s, and the cartoon show was required viewing. Every birthday and Christmas included the action figures or vehicles on your wish list. And, you know, G.I. Joe taught us some valuable lessons with knowing is half the battle. As long as you ignore that piece of crap G.I. Joe movie starring The Rock, it was one of the greatest things to come out in 1985. And another, again, amazing movie, arguably one of the greatest movies of the 80s, The Goonies. Came out on June 6, 1985, and was directed by Chris Columbus, who brought us movies like uh, Home Alone, Gremlins, the Harry Potter movies. It tells the story of a bunch of kids who live on the goondocks in Oregon, and while trying trying to save their homes from foreclosure, discover a treasure map. The map takes them on the adventure to find the treasure of 17th century pirate One-Eyed Willie. Made on a budget of $19 million, the film grossed $61.5 million and was a big hit, along with becoming a massive cult favorite. It would end up being in the top 10 money-making films of 1985, and when you look at the competition, that's a pretty good feat. The Goonies starred young actors like Sean Astin, Corey Feldman, and a young Thanos, um, Josh Brolin. They've been talking about a sequel for years, but The Goonies is one of those movies that it's just, it's like, it's untouchable. It's got to be left alone. You can't... I don't know. You can't reboot it. You can't remake it. But I don't know. Who knows? It, it, some other movies have pulled this off. It just it seems like one of those things that needs to be left alone. But we'll see. Okay, number three, WrestleMania 1. And if you've been a wrestling fan at any point, you have WrestleMania 1 to thank for it. What was considered a massive risk at the time, WrestleMania 1 was a first-of-its-time event that brought together professional wrestling, celebrities, and music into a culmination event that took place at Madison Square Gardens on March 31st, 1985. The main event was centered on Hulk Hogan and actor Mr. T against Rowdy Roddy Piper and Paul Mr. Wonderful Orndorff. And we talked about this before with the Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling thing, but it featured Cindy Lauper, who was a big part of getting the WWF to more of a mainstream product with that connection of the rock and wrestling connection. Owner of the then WWF, Vince McMahon put everything he had into WrestleMania 1, apparently like mortgages on his house, the whole deal. And if it hadn't worked, professional wrestling would have probably stayed a small regional niche attraction instead of the global powerhouse it now is. 
WrestleMania 1 was also the introduction of a new kind of viewing called closed-circuit television. This had never been done before, and it was a way for people to watch the event live in theaters in their own cities and would eventually lead um, the way to pay-per-view. Okay, we've reached the top two. And at number two, and it pains me to put this at number two and not number one, but you'll see why. Okay, at number two, my all-time favorite movie, and I think one of the most entertaining and beloved movies of all time, Back to the Future. What more can be said about Back to the Future that it hasn't already been covered? And I have covered it in a movie review that you can go back and check. It's perhaps the perfect movie because it has elements of comedy, action, uh, adventure, time travel, science fiction. It also featured one of the most popular actors at the time in Michael J. Fox. In, in case you're waking up and you've been in a time warp or something, Back to the Future tells the story of young Marty McFly who's accidentally sent back in time in a DeLorean invented by a disgraced nuclear physicist named Doc Brown. Why he's friends with a 17-year-old, I don't know. I'll leave that to John Mulaney to explain better. Anyway, Marty has to make sure his parents get back together while making sure he can get Back to the Future. Directed by Robert Zemeckis, Back to the Future came out on July 3rd, 1985 and was a monster hit. It would gross over $380 million worldwide. That's like a converted for today, I think that's like $850 million. It was the highest grossing film of 1985. Most don't remember, but it was actually nominated for three Academy Awards and would, of course, spawn two epic sequels. Back to the Future is a pivotal part of 1985 and the 80s, but there's one other thing that I think just barely edges it out for the number one thing that came out in 1985, and that is the Nintendo Entertainment System. Again, it might be it might seem weird looking back, but there was a time in the '80s, in the early '80s, where video games had died. And you know, if we we're just talking about this earlier. The video game crash in 1983 had bankrupted Atari and caused manufacturers and toy producers to distance themselves uh, from anything to do with video games. Like we talked about, that brought around things like the Pound Puppies. A nearly 100-year-old company in Japan called Nintendo was finding success in Japan with a new video game system they called the Famicom, or Family Computer. They believed in the advanced technology they had with this new system, and they wanted to bring it to North America. Worried about the backlash from the video game crash, they did everything they could to distance themselves from video games. They wouldn't use cartridges, but instead had a game pack. They didn't have joysticks. They had a control pad. There wasn't a console but you would use a control deck. And most importantly, they weren't a video game system, but an entertainment system. Even the design of the NES itself, instead of going from a cartridge that is pushed in on the top like it was with Atari, it would enter in the f and slide in the front like a VCR, making it seem more like an entertainment system. They changed the name from the Famicom to the Nintendo Entertainment System and rejuvenated the video game industry forever. The NES, NES came out on October 6, 1985, to select test markets before being released nationwide and changing video games forever and always. It's a crushingly tough call between this and Back to the Future, but to me, the NES is the most important thing that happened in 1985 due to the cultural, worldwide, and long-lasting impact that it had. And again, I've got other shows that are all about the history of the NES and the Nintendo company. It's pretty amazing, so check those out. Okay, that's it. <laughs> we covered a lot of why 85 was the greatest year ever, and there was a lot that made it great. I you know, I really argue that it's the, the definitive year of the decade, and it brought us so much that we still enjoy to this day. 
1985 exists perfectly in capturing some early and more quaint parts of the decade while embracing the advancements of technology and development that were ushering us into the latter part of the 80s and would propel us into the 90s. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope some of your favorites made the list. If they didn't, I'm sorry, but I think I covered a good sampling of stuff. So that's it from me. Thank you for listening to this show. I appreciate you taking the time. If you really like it, give it a rating and review. That way more people get to see it. And again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. That's it from me. I will be back soon with a new episode, so don't you dare miss it.